Just a moment. Just a moment. Welcome to the Future Law Podcast, exploring where the law has been. Hey Siri, take yourself and where it's going. Oh, good afternoon. From the brilliant. My name is Sophia, and I am the latest and greatest robot. To the scary. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? And everything in between. Please welcome your very real and very human host, Mike Madison. Welcome to the Future Law Podcast. This is your host, Professor Michael Madison of the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The phrase access to justice was current and important before the COVID pandemic, but the pandemic seems to have made the concept and problems with our systems of justice more salient and more urgent. My guest is on the front lines of dealing with access to justice problems and a leader in efforts to solve them. She is Chief Justice Bridget McCormick of the state of Michigan, who not only presides over that state's Supreme Court, but who is also the highest judge in that state's entire court system. In this wide-ranging review of the future of law, she and I talked about her impressive record in advancing court reform in Michigan leading up to the pandemic and how her efforts accelerated during that time. She revealed underappreciated reserves of entrepreneurial thinking among her fellow judges and members of the bar. We covered data analytics and contemporary technology and change management in complex systems. Before she was elected to the court, Chief Justice McCormack was a law professor at the University of Michigan, and we also talked about the present and future of law schools and training new lawyers. So, Chief Justice Bridget McCormack, welcome to the Future Law Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be here as a fan of the podcast. It's wonderful to get an opportunity to talk with you. Well, so there's no better way to get us off on the right foot than a little bit of flattery. So <laughs> thank you for that. Let's start the conversation today by taking you back just a little bit. You were a law professor for a long while at the University of Michigan. You were involved in leading their clinical programs, and then you got elected to the court. So tell us a little bit about how your view of the judicial system has changed when you migrated from academia into or onto, I should say, the bench? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, before I was um, on the U of M faculty, I spent a couple of years in the Yale clinical programs on the, on the faculty. Um, and before that, I was a legal aid lawyer. So I've spent my career um, representing people who couldn't afford lawyers um, and really viewed lawyers and in an academic setting, um, law professors and really smart law students as part of the solution to um, our ongoing access to justice crisis, I will call it. Um, and uh, since I've been on the bench, I quickly realized how much uh, room there is for judges and justices in particular on state Supreme Courts, which usually have administrative constitutional oversight of all of the courts of the state to really be leaders in reform. Um, so I think that was uh, probably the biggest shift in my thinking. I, but maybe that just makes me you know, a normal self-centered human. I thought when I was a lawyer, lawyers are really important. And now as a judge, I think judges are really important. Wow, I just revealed a lot in the answer to the first question, didn't I? 
Well, that's understandable, but it's also good. So let's bring us up to closer to the present day in terms of the timing. So the COVID pandemic hits in early 2020, and I'm curious about how that critical moment uh, sort of, again, changed your thinking about what was needed and what you were capable of in the the state court system in Michigan. So what what problems, challenges, opportunities were newly exposed or newly salient? And how did you rethink your role as the chief justice? So I'm not sure that my view changed about what was needed. I was very confident that um, big change was needed in how we address the legal problems of most people um, in our communities before we had a pandemic. Uh, what the pandemic changed dramatically was what I viewed as possible for lawyers and judges who, as you know, are slow to change, sometimes even resistant, sometimes uh, even uh, intransigently so. I mean, th- there is a, there, the resistance to change in our profession is, is pretty significant. So most reform efforts before there was a pandemic it, in my state in particular were, were, were sincere They were targeted. They were incremental. Some of them were successful, but in kind of around the edges sorts of ways. You know, none of them were going to disrupt uh, what we do and how we do it. There was no Netflix or Uber um, for access to justice. And what the pandemic taught me was, um, lo and behold, uh, we didn't have all of our um, entrepreneurship and innovation and creativity beaten out of us in law school, although the law schools try. No offense to my people. You all are my people. I still teach at the University of Michigan Law School. I love law school. But we, we, it turns out we had some of it when we needed it. And it was incredible to me that judges and lawyers could act like entrepreneurs all of a sudden when they had to, to protect people, to keep people safe. And so we saw people and we ourselves just were trying whatever we thought was the best thing we could do at the moment. And when it didn't work out, we tried something else the next day. And, you know, I think the most important lesson was that we could accelerate change um, if we want to. And we did, and we have um, for for 18 months, we've seen more change in the last 18 months in the in the legal system than in my entire career, and I'm 55, just to put it all on the table. Um, so um, that was the ex- most exciting uh, lesson in in the pandemic. Let's drill into the change management phenomenon a bit, and we will circle back to some of the content of the changes that you've supervised over the last 18 months. But I'm really interested in your comments about the stereotypically slow pace or incremental pace of change, and then the acceleration of change during the COVID pandemic. And as I heard you saying it, the interplay between hidden reserves of entrepreneurial thinking and innovative thinking that are present in the bar and the legal community more broadly, but also guidance and stimulation and encouragement from leadership. And so I wonder if you could talk us through a bit of your both your vision and your strategy for change management, taking account of both of those ends of a system. Yeah, change management. Excuse me. Change management is um, uh, very hard in our profession, um, but I'm more optimistic about it now than I have ever been. And when I and when I say our profession, I mean the legal profession broadly. And I I, I happen to think it's hard in uh, law school settings, like it is in. Um, complicated state court systems. Um, so let me explain some of the reasons why it's hard. Some of them are 
cultural and normative and even legal. You know, our 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 profession is devoted to um, like as a first principle, what decision was made in the past. That's 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 a um, important principle of 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 predictability and 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 uh, reliability of you know, the rule of law. But it it makes for um, it makes innovation harder um, in courts, in state court systems in particular, which I should I should say is where most law happens. You know, the federal courts do a couple of cases every year, as far as I can tell. But most people who need justice or who somebody needs justice from them are do, are having that happen in state courts. Um, the Michigan courts adjudicate between three and four million cases a year. That's a lot of people in the state who have legal problems that have to get resolved in state courts. And they're incredibly decentralized. Um, the courts in Michigan are largely locally funded, and therefore there is not a statewide technology system that would allow for easier um, data collection, better data collection, to be able to assess, you know, what we're doing and how we're doing it, and how it's working, um, as well as um, push out statewide um, infrastructure improvements. It's 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 impossible when you have a decentralized legal system like Michigan does and many, many states do. There are some states who have centralized um, state courts and they have a big advantage, I I say, Um, but uh, it's not like you see them way far ahead uh, of of us in Michigan. So what that means for effective systemic change and managing that change is, in my view, deep collaboration among and between the state court leaders and um, the other branches of government who fund us, who um, can uh, uh, partner with us to affect upstream change, um, and collaboration with community partners and the public. Deep collaboration and leadership from judges, in my view, and court administrators, frankly, court administrators are sometimes the most important people in the um, building, in the court building, are are two key components for achieving, in my view, um, big change, transformational change. Um, And we've had a few examples of, we've we've had some successful examples in Michigan, even before there was a pandemic in, in, in following those those principles, um, the pandemic, in my view, accelerated all of it. But but I think that 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 those principles were as important before the pandemic um, as they are now. You brought up the fact that there are some examples, some successes in Michigan. I wonder if you could talk us through one or two of those. Yeah. So so um, before any of us had heard of COVID nineteen um, in Michigan, we were actively working on addressing access to justice and equity in, in our justice system in a variety of ways. And I'll pick a couple. Um, we have, I think, what is the best self-represented website, um, self-represented litigant website in the country, michiganlegalhelp.org. It's tremendous. Uh, the traffic it sees daily is off the charts. It has self-help centers with um, navigators throughout the state. Um, and it's a tremendous resource. We had underway in Michigan a um, bipartisan joint task force on jail and pretrial incarceration. I mean, we when we talk about access to justice, we're largely focused on the civil justice system where people who can't afford lawyers have no option uh, to, to have them. But as you as you are well aware, it is also the case in the in the criminal justice system that many people in our county jails are there for 
failure to pay fines and fees, violations of probation, things for which they also don't have lawyers. Um, And in Michigan, um, the legislature, which was led by Republicans, the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader, the governor, who was an elected Democrat, and myself, I'm a nonpartisan, as you know, in the court, um, joined together with the county sheriffs and the Michigan Association of Counties, because they fund our local courts and jails. And we were staffed by the Pew Charitable Trust to collect data that was not before available to understand why our county jail populations had tripled over the last 30 years, even though crime was at a 50-year low. Michigan's not special, by the way, in that. That's true across the country. And nobody understands why, because nobody collects good data about these about these issues. Um, but with the help of the Pew research team, um, we did collect that data and best practices and research from around the country. And then traveled around the country, this bipartisan 23-member task force with, with really diverse people at the table and heard from the public. So we had great qualitative in addition to quantitative evidence that um, we came to 18 consensus recommendations that, um, if enacted, will make Michigan a national leader in jail and pretrial reform. And last December, the governor signed 20 bills into law. Um, it was a tremendous effort, and there are a bunch more bills uh Uh, that have been introduced to address um, further recommendations right now. Um, And it's a real success story. Michigan has um, more bipartisan criminal justice reform than any other state in the country. I I, I will put us up against anyone. Um, That's just one example. There's there's lots more. And it's because of this, in my view, collaboration and, and leadership. Um, Another example, before the pandemic, we launched a Justice for All task force, which was, um, you you may or may not know, there are about 14 Justice for All states that have have gotten some funding from the National Center for State Courts and some other foundations to look at innovative and uh, um, collaborative ways to address the civil justice gap. Um, I don't need to remind your listeners of the numbers, but most people who need a lawyer for a civil justice problem can't afford one. Um, and they either don't try to navigate the problem, they just figure it's bad luck, it's just bad things happen to me, and they just give up, um, or they try on their own, and it's you know really hard to do because we speak this other language in courts, and we have all these weird rules about like jumping over that hurdle and then you know twirling three times before you enter that door. And um, so our Justice for All Task Force was engaged in a a statewide inventory and then um, putting together a plan for. A unique way to address, um, and not just one way, but lots of different ways to address our civil justice gap in Michigan, including regulatory reform and process simplification and uh, friendlier courthouses online and in person. And and then uh, uh, the pandemic hit, and it, it's almost as if it gave it more urgency, more lift, um, more interest from um, um, communities around the state. Um, who, and frankly, even around the country, we've found all these other partners now who are uh, assisting in what I think will be a, a wonderful model for state courts around the country who want to address the access to justice gap. It's, it's kind of exciting. It's an exciting time to, to, to be thinking about and working on all of these issues. But I, but I do think that to sustain change and to to really bring in big change, um, collaboration turns out to be critical um, and leadership. Let me pull out of that summary a couple of key points that I heard, make sure that I heard them accurately, and then see if we can build on that. In terms of 
barriers and challenges system-wide. We've got a legal culture that, for understandable reasons, is grounded in history and precedent and therefore in incrementalism. We have, as you said, a court system that is highly decentralized and localized, and that's specific to the case that you were describing, but I think it also characterizes a great deal of legal systems, educational systems, professional systems generally. So I don't think it's unique to the judicial system. I think it's just an attribute of complex systems that they often are highly decentralized. So those are two, two big barriers. Then along the way, as you were talking through your examples of successes, something that I heard repeatedly in your description was the importance of evidence and the importance of data, quantitative data, qualitative data, both to understand the true character of the problem and the true scope of the problem. And it's difficult to move forward unless you really know what's going on. And our systems are not necessarily set up for that kind of understanding. I guess this all adds up to the following question, which is, where do you start? And I I asked the question not so much in terms of a historical account of what you've done yourself or with your colleagues, but more in the sense of if you were giving advice to a chief justice or a court administrator or a judge lower level in a state court system, or even to a managing partner of a law firm or a dean or a faculty member of a law school who is looking at a complicated, slow-moving, sort of traditionally oriented system, but knowing instinctively that there is opportunity to explore, to make the system better, to make its impacts better, to make opportunities better, where do you start? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, and I, you know, feel pretty confident that you, you can't, you, you probably can't tackle all of those problems all at the same time. So targeting, you know, the Michigan County jail growth made a lot of sense as, you know, one place to actually see what we could get done um, if we worked collaboratively and in a bipartisan way and actually found a partner to help us collect the data. I mean, I will say that the jails task force, um, like many other efforts in Michigan, has as one of its recommendations that the state start funding excellent criminal justice data collection and criminal justice data collection that communicates across agencies, right? Our, our, Our police data and our court data and our prosecution data need to better, need to be able to talk to one another. Um, so you're you're absolutely right about the the the, the data piece, but I think targeting one um, discrete it's not discrete at all it's enormous criminal the, the jail population problem is an enormous problem but it's discrete right it's it's um, it's something about around which you can with with effort and energy and interest figure out what the problem is um, collecting the data is a lot of work and I'm not sure there was a way to do it without the help of Pew, its resources and its um, researchers. But increasingly there is interest from um, places like Pew and academic institutions in partnering with um, state courts who are working on reform efforts. Um, We have a juvenile justice task force underway right now and we have CSG um, helping us on the research and there. Um, And frankly, once you can collect that data and everybody gets to look at it, it's, it, it, it peels away a lot of the preconceived notions we all have about the how, how the system is working, right? Because now we can actually see how it's working. I mean, once we had the data about the county jails in Michigan, we learned that the third reason, the third most popular reason people are going to county jails in Michigan is get this, driving with a suspended license. 
That's it. That's the third in the Wayne County Jail, which is where Detroit is, the biggest the biggest county jail in the state. It was the single highest reason people were were getting lodged in the county jail. Well, that was a you know really easy place for all of us, really diverse stakeholders on this task force, and then diverse people in the legislature who ended up having to operationalize the, the recommendations to agree. Why are we putting people in jail for driving with a suspended license when, in fact, um, in Michigan, you get you used to, this is no longer true, thanks to the work of the jail task force, used to get your license suspended for things that had nothing to do with driving safety. So we used to, like many other states, by the way, um, suspend people's licenses for failure to pay court fines or fees um, or child support or other um, uh, financial obligations um, that the, the 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 penalty was suspend people's driver's license. Well, in Michigan, you can't get to work unless you drive a car. We don't have public transportation. This is the motor city. We, we drive. Um, and so if you want people to be able to pay their obligations, they're going to have to drive to work. And if they're driving with a suspended license and they get pulled over, the police have no option but to take them to jail. It was a mandatory arrest offense. All of this makes no sense. It's kind of easy to see it. But until you actually collect the data and look at it all together, diverse people around a table, um, everybody can have their own preconceived notions about why you know why you have certain problems. Um, so pick a discrete one, do the work, get the data, and gather discrete stakeholders. Um, I think in in all really tough problems, you have to surround it with all the stakeholders, and everybody has to um, come to some agreement about what the what the change needs to look like. I don't care at all how people come to the table. You just want them all at the table if they're a stakeholder that can contribute to fixing it. I'm a big believer in surrounding complicated problems with all stakeholders. In the last part of the podcast, I, I want to invite you to look forward. So you've done an enormous amount of work with an enormous number of people over the last few years, including during the COVID pandemic. What are your priorities looking ahead? What are the next set of challenges to embrace in terms of court reform, access to justice, collaboration among different stakeholders around the system? Uh, and what problems and challenges do you anticipate possibly tackling beyond the remit of your position as chief itself? That is, there are presumably spillover benefits associated with getting all of these people together. And my bet is that you've seen how some of those spillovers can positively work. So I'm wondering, What's coming next? What are the problems that you want to tackle? And what kinds of impacts do you hope to have? Yeah, so one thing I didn't talk about yet, but I'm, I know uh, your listeners have all noticed, is um, the extent to which courts learned how to do much of what they do online is um, it has been a really important learning experience for us. Not, not, not only because um, we learned that, that technology isn't, doesn't have to be scary to judges and lawyers, but more than that, we have measurable um, outcomes that are impossible to turn away from. So there's data that will, that shows that um, in eviction cases, the default level um, plummets when you offer people an online option for appearing in court. Uh, same for debt collection cases. In termination of parental rights cases, um, judges regularly report getting better information from uh, parents and kids um, who can tune in and um, from maybe a place that's a little bit more comfortable than a courthouse, um, give a judge better information about what's happening in a, in, a, in, a, in a particular situation. So the benefits that we now know we have learned from 
basically just moving courts online. That's kind of all we've done so far. We haven't really moved to online courts. We've just moved courts online. But we have enough benefits that we've learned that we now have to tackle how to keep the good um, and figure out what what the problems are and, and, and address them. And that's a hard process because... Um, as I think Richard Susskind puts it, there are there's a lot of hunkering and hankering happening. People, you know, hunkering down, hoping hoping it just passes and we can go back to, to the way it was, and or hankering for the way it was. Um, and I, and that's absolutely true everywhere. It's less true for lawyers than it is for judges, I will say. Um, and not all judges. We have we have lots of judicial leaders across the state of Michigan who really have seen the benefits for the people in their communities about offering remote options for so many parts of what we do. But um, figuring out how to bring some um, uniformity to what we what we do in a remote setting um, in our justice systems is kind of what we're involved in right now. We're actually taking public comment on all of that um, and, 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 you know, from lawyers, from judges, from court users who don't have lawyers um, so that we can make a determination about where going forward, all of that fits. And that's a huge, a a really important effort because of where I started. When you know that um, a lot more people um, are able to access court, access justice when they have that option, you can't, you can't look away. Right. Um, so that's 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 on the list. Um, as I as I said, we've just started underway with another uh, bipartisan, multi-branch collaborative effort together with um, staffed by CSG to look at our juvenile justice system, which is suffers from all of the problems uh, you so eloquently identified. And pick, picking out of my other examples, the decentralized courts, the lack of data. And, and in the juvenile system, it's even in some ways it's worse because it's not public. Um, so there's there there are tremendous inequities that need to be addressed. And then the, there is a I think um, the moment is right right now to figure out how to move mental health and substance abuse, behavioral health issues out of courts and into diversion, um, even you know diversion before court. Um, and we're working on some pilots in um, local jurisdictions. By the way, another way to do this is find a local jurisdiction with leaders that are that want to collaborate and become uh, a model for the rest of the state and collect some data and show the rest of the state how you not only build healthier communities, but you uh, save money, which there is, you know, there are examples of, of, of that around the country. Um, so that, I think those issues are, are important to tackle right now. I still love law schools and legal education, so I have been thinking a lot also about um, what law schools can do differently to to, to produce um, graduates who can who can tackle these problems instead of just bespoke lawyers for bespoke clients um, who make up a tiny tiny part of the legal infrastructure. And I know I'm going on and on. I apologize. Well, so that last note, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to extend because that's part of my language and my day job uh, is doing exactly that, which is preparing new graduates effectively to participate in all of these new systems and these new worlds and solve problems at larger as well as smaller scales. So let me give you the opportunity to share some of your thoughts on how law schools can do that more effectively, whether that means changing the way law schools operate 
maybe changing who's operating the law schools, maybe changing what it is that law schools do, or maybe even changing some of who goes to law school? So I think it might be all of the above. Um, and as with other complex problems, I think there uh, this is a complex problem, right? Because, you, I mean, you know, uh, uh, as, as well as anybody, maybe better than anybody, that it's not just a matter of will. I mean, you you might well want to make sure your law school is producing um, uh, law graduates ready to go fix civil justice in Michigan, but your law school is regulated but like everybody else um, and therefore has a certain um, set of inputs and outputs it has to produce every year to not just keep its regulation, but compete um, in the marketplace for students and all of that makes innovation complicated, as we know. Um, so I think that part of the solution might be looking at the kinds of things uh, the regulators care about in law school outputs, right? What are we looking for? What do we want to see um, from law schools going forward? But, but, but if there was no U.S. News and World Report and there was no like marketplace competition um, and you could just be... Uh, the king of your law school. I do think all of the other um, ideas you ticked off are important. Um, I think it's, I think we're not teaching enough law students enough skills um, to to send them out and transform the legal system the way I think it needs to be transformed. We're not, you know, you can still go to law school and never learn Excel, as far as I can tell, much less, you know, big data and um, coding and some of the things that I think the skills that I believe if we unleashed law students with, we could see change more quickly. Um, but we're also not teaching law students. I mean, sometimes in clinical programs, law students end up having to go to local courts and then you can't help but learn about um, access to justice and, and the ways in which what you read in textbooks doesn't look that doesn't map on that well to what's happening in our, in our, uh, local courthouses. But that's just if you're lucky enough to be in a clinic that sends you to housing court, right? I mean, otherwise, you could get through law school and just read appellate cases and believe that apparently everyone gets a lawyer who can make an eloquent argument that may or may not win, you know, in some appellate court one day, when of course, that's not what happens in most uh, people's justice problems at all. And I don't, we have to do better about that too. I mean, I don't know if it's like two weeks of boot camp at the beginning of law school where everybody goes to housing court for, you know, two days and then goes to the misdemeanor arraignments for two days and then to um, the debt collection docket for two days and listens to the stories of people without lawyers trying to explain to a judge why they don't have the $75. But but I want our law students to be upset about that when they start law school uh, at the end of the first year, at the end of the second year, and when they graduate. Because, and then I want them armed with the tools to go fix it. So I, I'm, I don't know. I'm probably not going to – if I apply to be the dean of a law school, someone's going to use this against me one day. But, but I think that, that there's a um, – like in many of our state court systems where complex problems are um, hard to fix, there are some complex problems in legal education. I also think, yeah, figuring out how to arm more people with tools – um, whether it's a law degree or something else, the lawyers we're producing right now are really hard to scale. They're not going to scale. We need other ways to arm people with tools and information to help people with legal problems. It's, it's, it's pretty important.
That's a great place to end. We're going to call that a call to action. And I hope that if you do end up applying for a law school deanship someday, that uh, not only does your commentary not get used against you, but that it's actually a critical piece of evidence in support of your candidacy, because I think it's really critical. So, Bridget McCormack, thank you so much for spending time with me today, talking through your experience as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Michigan and leader of the Michigan State Court System. We could keep talking for a long, long while, and I hope that we'll have the opportunity to do that. So I'll be following your career closely and look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Me too. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Future Law Podcast. For links to the articles mentioned and to contact the hosts, visit futurelawpodcast.com.